You're listening to audio from Century Baptist Church. To connect with us, visit centurybaptist.org or download the Century Baptist Church app. Oh, Father, would you uh, just work in a mighty way in this room this morning uh, that those words would ring true, uh, that we would desire so deeply uh, for your Son to, to just be proclaimed through our life, to be our lives to be filled with Him, uh, with your Spirit, to do what it is that you've called us to do, to love you uh, and to take this message out to the world. Thank you for this time of uh, just worship, that we could just lift up our voices to you. We love you. We thank you for your word and what it teaches us. Uh, we give you this time now, God, in your name, amen. You can be seated. Good morning, everybody. Uh, in the late 1950s, uh, C.S. Lewis was given a position at the University of Cambridge as the professor of medieval and Renaissance literature. I would say he would probably have been my favorite professor, right? Who else is better to teach uh, medieval literature and Renaissance literature than C.S. Lewis? Uh, But as he was interacting with the theology professors, uh, he became more and more disturbed at what he was hearing was being taught within the the seminary and within the theology department. You see, it was during the late 1950s that this rise of uh, what is known as higher textual criticism uh, when it comes to uh, the study of the Bible that began to kind of become pretty well known and pretty famous. Uh, And Lewis took issue with it. He claimed, he said, I'm I'm no theologian, but I I seem to find some problems. And I would disagree with C.S. Lewis. He's an incredible theologian, uh, but he wanted to ultimately just kind of take the other professors to task on what it is that they were teaching. And so the president of the university said, well, why don't you give us, why don't you give a speech to the theology department and the students and the professors? And so he, he wrote a little essay called Modern Theology and Biblical Criticism, and, and in it he addresses a number of things that he has uh, concerns with. Um, most importantly was uh, that this new way of biblical criticism w- was really taught from a perspective that it didn't matter if Jesus was divine or not. Uh, it was just a matter of what did he do as a person. And then this led to th- this teaching of does it really, does it really matter if, if Jesus was or wasn't God and if he did or did not go to the cross or even if he did or did not rise from the dead, what matters, they were saying, is if you believe in it. And if you believe in it, then God's going to reward that, and that's where your salvation comes, right? Terrible, terrible theology. Uh, But it was becoming more and more popular. Lewis started to rip it apart. Um, These so-called scholars had thrown out uh, so much of Scripture because to them, uh, the Bible, they said, was merely a historical document and the only way that it could be true would be to find other extra-biblical biblical historical documents that would, that would add to it. And so they started teaching the extra-biblical documents instead of just teaching Scripture. And there's a whole lot more to it. It might sound confusing, but when it came to the area of the res- resurrection, uh, they began to claim it mere, uh, as mere myth. Uh, did it really matter if Christ rose from the dead? The answer is yes. Absolutely, it does. But there are so many errors that Lewis was pained uh, over. And in this lecture, uh, what he 
said as probably the most powerful statement to the people in the room was that he said, these men are asking us to believe that they can read between the lines of Scripture. In other words, that they're teaching us what the Bible doesn't say. But where, do they, where do they get this? And he says, they claim to see fern seeds, and they can't even see an elephant 10 yards away in broad daylight. Right? And fern seeds, I don't know if you know this, are like dust particles. They're, they're spores that are just in the air. In other words, they're taking what nobody knows and nobody can see, and they're teaching that, and they're not teaching the obvious. Today, as we begin Matthew chapter 16, that's what I see in this text. I see the religious leaders of the day who are far more focused on fern seeds than they are the obvious that is right in front of them. Jesus had now been in Gentile territory, chapter 15, performed an endless amount of miracles, healing people, changing lives, And he gets in the boat and he sails across the Sea of Galilee. He lands in uh, this area of Magdala. It's the western side of the Sea of Galilee. And uh, waiting for him on the shores are, yay, the Pharisees, right, who are always out to get him. This is what happens with the interaction. If you are willing and able, would you stand as I just read for you the first four verses of Matthew chapter 16. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees came, and and to test Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And he answered them, when it's evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. And Jesus left them, and he departed. You could have a seat. So let's just talk about fern seeds and elephants uh, today a a little bit. First of all, what we find, let me just walk you through kind of what's happening in the text, and then we'll leave here with uh, hopefully some great application to our lives. But it starts out with this really dangerous combination, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Isn't it, isn't it just like life that these great things happen? Jesus is performing miracles and thousands of people are following him. He's like, that's pretty good. You know, let's go over to the other side of the lake. And he gets over there and here stand, right, the, the, the people that are just out to get him, right? They just want to rip him apart and, and, and knock him down. And, and, and Jesus, he's not having it. If you, if you have been around here for a while as we've been walking through Matthew Uh, This passage might sound a little bit familiar because uh, the same type of interaction happened with the Pharisees back in Matthew chapter 12. The Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus and he had performed all these miracles. And they're like, hey, would you show us a sign? And he's like, "Uh, I I just did, right? I'm not not going to give you uh, a sign because you're not going to believe. Uh, Anyway, what makes it different this time is it happens again as they keep nagging him and they want to see it because what they're doing is they want to prove him wrong. They don't want to see a sign. They want to see him not do it. They want to see him try and fail so that all the people will finally see that Jesus isn't who he claims to be. This time the Sadducees have joined in as well. This is the, the only time that we find in the New Testament that the Pharisees and the Sadducees are doing anything in unity. 
They don't like each other. They don't get along. They don't see eye to eye. They come from different backgrounds. The, the, the Sadducees came really from wealthy families and were very wealthy themselves. The Pharisees came from uh, poor, uh, humble homes, but were gaining wealth because of their religious position. Um, the, the Sadducees uh, didn't believe in the afterlife. They didn't believe in the supernatural. They don't believe in angels or they didn't believe in demons. They definitely didn't believe in the resurrection. They just thought that when you die, you, you're dead and gone. And so they didn't even see eye to eye theologically. And so they clashed. They're not from the same people group. They don't believe in the same thing. But the one thing that brought them together, the one thing that they could find that they had in common is that they hated Jesus and they wanted to get rid of him. Amazing that that would be, that hate would be the thing that would unify them. The, the amazing thing about the Pharisees and the Sadducees is that they actually were, we call them the religious leaders, but, but they were the religious leaders once you got outside of the temple in Jerusalem. Inside of the temple was the high priest, the one that would, and the priest that would, that would make sacrifice for people for their sins. But it was the role, as we talk about often, of these other religious leaders to make sure that everybody in their nation was obeying uh, the laws of God as well as their laws that they had come up with. And so their motivation for what they did was really selfish. It was, we've been given authority, we've been given power, and we're going to make the most of it, and we're going to hold people down. And they, they took great advantage of it, even to the point of not just holding people accountable for their sin, or even not even their sin, but their breaking of their own personal laws, and they found great joy, as we read in the New Testament, in being the ones that got to provide the punishment for it. They weren't great people, although they were, they were doing what they felt was, was God's call in their life. They were just incredibly misguided. And, and so what we find is that they have now come together to try and test Jesus so that they could get rid of him once and for all. As we mentioned last week, he was a threat to their authority, their power, their wealth. The Roman government could easily swoop in and go, man, this guy Jesus has, has more followers than you guys do. He's got people more excited about life than you do, and so we're going to let him be king, and they weren't about to let that happen. And so they came to test Jesus, Matthew says. In other words, they came to trap him. They, they wanted to make sure that, that nobody would believe, believe him anymore. Mark tells us in chapter 8, which is the parallel passage of the way Matthew tells it, in eight, uh, chapter 8, verse 11, that they started the whole thing with arguing with him. So in other words, Jesus sails over to the other side, he gets out of the boat, and immediately they get into an argument. Uh, we, what they're arguing about, we don't know, but it kind of ends with, I think, that the argument would then end with, well, you know what, just show us something spectacular and, and prove that you are who you say you are. Their hope is, is that they could put him to the test so that he would fail. They want a sign from the heavens, meaning do something so spectacular that, that it would leave absolutely no doubt. No one could deny. The problem is that they're starting from a point of wanting to disbelieve, right? Notting, wanting to not believe in who he is. We're here to prove you wrong. We're going to do it in front of a large crowd. We're going to prove you a liar and a fool. And then we can all go on our way. It was a dangerous situation 
but it was an also a, a very inadequate endeavor on their part because they weren't going to get anywhere. Mark says that in that moment, Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit. In other words, he kind of had this inner groaning from the deepest part of his heart. It's, there's a brokenness to it for, for the lostness of the, these religious leaders and the way that they were leading people astray, how they just refused to get it. It wasn't one of anger. He wasn't mad at them. He was broken for them. How can those who claim to, to know not just Scripture, but, but even those that, that study the, 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 the fern seeds, the, the smallest bits of this religious life, how could you be so ignorant to what it is that you're supposed to know and what it is that really their role was to study the Scriptures, to know and prepare. That, that, was, the, that was what God told His people all throughout the Old Testament. The entire Old Testament from the beginning uh, all the way up to the book of Malachi is about get ready because the Messiah is coming. It's, it's throughout every story, every hero story that we read about in the Old Testament. It's all pointing to the one that would come and would save. Their one job, really, as religious leaders was to prepare their people for that moment that when the Savior came, that they would be absolutely ready. And they ignored it because they didn't want to. They didn't want to know. They didn't want to see. They weren't looking for the Messiah. They were only looking for how they could improve their own lives materially and through power and authority so what they decided to do was to prove who jesus was not instead of seeing the obvious the proof of, of who he actually is and jesus heart's broken for it their entire religious experience it comes from a negative perspective right? i mean that that happens that'll that happens to us we all know it you start hanging around negative people, you will become negative. You be, you, if you're a negative person, you will do nothing but see the world from a negative perspective and no one will want to be around you. It ruins our lives. And for the Pharisees, that was, that was what they adopted. Let's make sure that we make more laws to, to hold the people down and then let's catch them in, those, in that sin and then let's punish them for it. And they were so passionate about wrecking Jesus and, and, and proving Him wrong so that He wouldn't upend their own lives, that they couldn't even see the elephant in front of them, the, the obvious. I, I, I read an interesting um, study this past week from King's College in London, and they actually did a study on, on negative thinking, and they found in their research that that prolonged negative thinking, if you're a negative person, always seeing the, the bad in it. We often say in our house, don't be the wah-wah, right? That's, but so many people live that way, of looking for the negative and what everybody else is doing wrong. And the study shows that it actually, negative thinking actually reduces your brain's ability to think clearly. It, it also reduces your brain's ability to reason and it reduces your brain's ability to even keep memories. And the study is actually still going on today that actually says that there may be a connection through negative thinking and Alzheimer's and dementia. 
not saying that it's the only reason, but, but there's, there's a lot to this. That Because it's not how we're created. It's not what we're supposed to do. Right? God created us to be in a relationship with Him, to see Him in all of His glory, and that is the filter that we get to see the rest of the world through. That if the world is falling apart, it's falling apart because they don't know God, but I do, and so I've got the joy, and He says that I'm salt and light, and I'm supposed to go out to the world and tell people about Him. We're not supposed to go around crying and kicking and screaming, being angry about everything that's going on around us, looking for ways also, because the more we do that, then we start to look for ways of, when we see people that are happy, uh, right, then they, we, we got to tear them down, right, because I'm not happy that you're happy, because I'm a negative person, so I got to make sure that you're not happy, so I got to prove you wrong, I got to tear you down, I got to, uh, whatever it is, it's, really, it's a soapbox, I know that I've been on for quite some time, but I'm tired of it. Because we have the joy of the Lord through Jesus Christ. Their, their negative thinking and their negative attitudes led to killing Jesus. More interesting in the study is that cynicism actually produces a greater risk for dementia. Right? You're just not able to think straight anymore. The more we focus on our negative the more our lives diminish greatly. It's all about where we place our, our focus. But Jesus was a threat to them, and they were not going to let their power go. Because if He was the Messiah, and that's what it came down to, if He was the Messiah, there was no need for them anymore. Right? They, they, they just become average people. They lose their power, and they lose their wealth. And so they had to get rid of Him. We'll get into this in a few weeks, but when Jesus finally explains to his disciples what is going to happen at the end of his life, that he will be betrayed, that he would be arrested, that he would go to the cross for the sins of mankind, but then he would rise again, Peter rebukes Jesus, right? And, and he, he starts to say, absolutely not, don't you dare say that. That's wrong of you to say that. And Jesus, with stern words, says to Peter, he says, get behind me, Satan. He says, because you're thinking with the mind of a man and not with the mind toward the will of God. So change your thinking, because this has to happen. You're only concerned, really, with yourself. What you need to be able to see is what was said about this in the past and then you'll be able to accept what comes in the future. So Jesus is a little frustrated with these religious leaders. And, and he gives them kind of a, this reprimand by saying, look, you're really, good at, you're really good at reading the sky, right? Red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky at morning, sailors take warning. That's, he says, you, you're able to look at the sky, and if it's red at, at night, you, you, you know that it's going to be a nice day tomorrow. If it's red in the morning, man, you, you know that it's not going to be a good day. Storms are coming. He says, you're able to, you're able to look at, at the skies, but you have not looked beyond it. You haven't looked to the heavens. And you haven't looked at your scriptures to see what it is that, that God has said about what is to come in the future so that when it came, you would be ready. I think also, Jesus doesn't say it, but what I think is intended is that is that you, you're able to look at the sky, and the reason that you look at the sky is to see what's the weather going to be like tomorrow so you can adjust your life accordingly. 
If it's, if it's going to be nice tomorrow, you know you can, you can go on with your day, get the things done that you need to. If you, if you realize that in the morning that it's going to be stormy and rainy, then, you know, put your softball gear away, right? The tournament's not happening. I mean, you, you adjust your life. And Jesus says, you have the ability to, to do that and adjust your life to this, but you've totally ignored all that the Scriptures have told you, all of the law and all of the prophets about the One, the Savior, the Messiah that would come, and you don't even see it because you haven't adjusted your life accordingly. What are you doing, Jesus says. So after that scolding, He... He tells them, so, so here's what's going to happen. I'm not going to give you a, a sign. I'm, I'm, you're not going to see anything in, until the sign of Jonah comes. The prayer of Paul in, in uh, the book of Colossians, his prayer for the church, he opens up. He says, I pray for you that, you, that God would give you wise minds and a spirit attuned to His will, so that you will acquire a thorough understanding of the ways in which God works. That's His prayer for the church. That's His prayer for us. God's prayer for us. Jesus' desire for us. That, that our prayer would be, God, give me a mind to actually be able to, to see in Your Word what it is that You've been up to and what it is that You're going to continue to do so that I can trust You in the middle of all of it, so that I can see and understand the way in which you, you work. It was actually the role of the Sanhedrin, uh, which were th- this kind of a council of these religious leaders, to pay attention to what was going on in the world and, and then direct the people uh, accordingly, and they hadn't done it. Jesus says, you need to focus on something higher than the skies. Really, what is coming down from the heavens, or what has come, and that's me. D.A. Carson says the fact that they ask for a sign is proof that they are absolutely unable to discern the signs of the times. I think about the parable that Jesus uh, shares in Luke chapter 16 of the rich man and Lazarus. So it's the rich man and the poor man. And uh, so in this parable that Jesus is trying to teach. He says that the rich man and the poor man both both passed away. And uh, the poor man goes to heaven and the rich man goes to hell. And he's tormented in the fires of hell. And the man looks up and he sees a vision of Abraham above him and he cries out to Abraham. He says, oh, he says, would you please, please, could you just send that poor man to dip his finger in some water and then just let me taste a drop. That's how miserable he was. Jesus is making a, a, a really painting a picture here of how awful an eternity separated from God is and the misery that he says, he says, I'm, I'm, I'm burning up. Even a drop of water might help me. And Abraham's response is that can't happen, right? It's too late. You're separated. You made, you made your decisions. And he says, well, then will you do me a favor? Would you send Lazarus? Send Lazarus from the dead back to my family because I've got five brothers and a father that need to hear that they don't want to spend eternity here. So please send Lazarus to tell them 
to, to do whatever they need to do to make sure that they don't end up here. And again, Abraham says, the chasm is too big. It, it, it can't happen. He's, he's, already, he's already passed away and he's in the presence of God, which you are not. And he said, plus, he said, it, it wouldn't matter. They've been given everything that they need to understand about eternity in the law and the prophets, in Scripture. So a resurrected man is going to be of no help to them if they don't believe this first. So they could put two and two together. Because seeing is not always believing, but belief. A start, a beginning of belief gives us the ability to see. Believing that this is the Word of God. Perfect in every way. Given to, given to us so we would know everything about Him and our lives and the future, that we would study this so that when we see what's happening around us, we would say, I know why that's taking place. And our lives would change and adjust accordingly. So Jesus, he ends this conversation with uh, the, um, an affirmation, uh, a huge affirmation. doesn't give him a sign. He says, but the sign will come. It's just not going to be for a while. He says that the evil and adulterous generation always seeks a sign. They were often called adulterous. God often called the, the Israelites adulterous because they, they, they were unfaithful to him. They went looking for their happiness, their joy in, in other places, other gods. Wanting more, wanting something else when they had what in front of them was perfect. So Jesus knows no matter what I do, it's never going to be enough for you guys. Right? You're, you're still going to reject me. And, and I would also say that this says a lot, again, we, we know the heart of Christ. And, and we know that he's fully human. There, there had to have been a little bit of a wrestle there. Maybe, I don't know, if it was me, I'd have wrestled. Because I have the power to, to, to perform the greatest miracles in the world right now. To just shut you guys up finally and send you home you would just leave me alone and had jesus done it do you know what would have happened let's just say he would have done something spectacular and performed some incredible miracle their, their jaws drop and they say truly you are the son of god do you know what what would have happened not the crucifixion not his death by jesus not performing a sign he was fulfilling god's plan and his mission to go to the cross to give his life up for you and me and he says, so no sign is going to come to you. No spectacular event from heaven is going to come to you except for the sign of Jonah. And he's talking about the resurrection. That when that happens, then you will know what you've rejected all along, that I truly am the Son of God and I am the Messiah. The sign of, of Jonah, he says in Matthew chapter 12, in that earlier argument, he says, just as Jonah was in the belly of a fish for three days and nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth. And if you were a good studier of the Word, like the Pharisees and Sadducees should have been, they also would have realized that, that upon Jonah's release out of the fish and going to this city of Nineveh, that he would preach a message of repentance and the entire city would turn their lives over to God. They would repent of their sin and they would follow after him. And so the sign of Jonah was the resurrection 
that, that should have drawn them to repentance. But we know, we know that, that they still didn't believe. We read at the end of the Gospels that upon Christ's resurrection, the, the spiritual leaders got together to, to fabricate it. We have to come up with a story so people don't believe this thing. We have to say that the disciples stole his body. Even the resurrection didn't wake them up to the fact of who Jesus was. Jesus knew that. He says, there's nothing I can do, no sign that I can perform that's going to make you believe me, so I'm not going to do it. But trust me, it's coming. Pay attention. Again, pay attention of what is to come and know that your lives will change. Then it says that, that when Jesus said it, look, I've given you way more application to what Jesus said than Jesus did to the people. Because all he said was, I'm not going to give you a sign except the sign of Jonah. And he got in the boat and sailed away. Which is a, really the, the way that a, that a good Jewish rabbi would teach. You would, you would say something and you'd teach it. You'd leave it out there, a story, and you would let it sit. And, and it was the, the role of the disciple, the, the follower, the learner, to try and figure out what it is that he had just said. We have the ability of knowing after the resurrection of what it was about. They had to wait for it. And they still didn't believe. The Apostle Paul, as he opens up the book of Romans and writes that letter, shares clearly the fulfillment of Jesus' promise of the sign of the resurrection. He says this in in Romans chapter 1. He says, I'm Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, that is, the good news, that Christ came, gave His life up, died for our sins, that if we would, would acknowledge that or receive it, we let Christ fill our lives, that we could live not only in eternity with the Father, but that we would have full joy in this life that we live on this earth. I'm set apart for the gospel of God, which He promised beforehand through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning His Son who was descended from David according to the flesh, was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including all of you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Paul right there says, says, I am who I am because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You are who you are because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You live today because Christ defeated death. You have a hope for life after death because of what Christ did in defeating the grave. Do you believe it? For us today, we we have the privilege of not just knowing that Christ rose from the dead, but we have... The privilege of knowing the power of that resurrection in each and every one of our lives. As we've surrendered our life to Him, as we do acknowledge this gift of life that He's given to us. And through it, we get to walk in a great hope that no matter what happens in this world, the Savior is coming again because He's alive and He's promised it. And it's only it's the last promise that we're waiting to be fulfilled in all of Scripture, His return. 
He hasn't gone back on any of them. He's fulfilled all of them. And he promises that he will fulfill it. He'll come for his church. And the way that you get to be a part of that is to be a part of the church. Not Century Baptist, but a believer in Jesus Christ. A follower of his. Having repented of your sins and accepted the grace and forgiveness that Jesus gives us. It's our role to take up then that same task of Jonah. That we, we've known death. We've tasted death. We're lost in our sins. We also know resurrection in a small bit in the sense that we get rescued from death and now we've been given life because of who Christ is. And we get to walk in it. And, and you can imagine Jonah was more than willing to go and preach and obey God once he was spit out of that fish for three days. Could you imagine being trapped in there, wanting out so desperately, praying to God, would you just rescue me, save me, this is miserable, and he does? Jonah would say, I'll, go and do, I'll do anything now. i got a message to preach. And the people believe him. And it's the same thing with us. When we know and understand what we've been saved from and rescued into, you shouldn't be able to hold us back from preaching this good news that Paul talks about. And we too... We too are given scriptures that talk about paying attention to the signs of the times so that, that we would know and prepare for the return of Christ. And it should, it should give us a great passion to want to spread that message to save as many people as we possibly can. May we pay attention to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24. Not, not for negativity, not for anger, right? But he says, pay attention to what's going on around you in the world. There will be wars and rumors of wars. There'll be per- you'll be persecuted for your faith. There'll be floods, there'll be earthquakes, there'll be false prophets that will come. There'll be famines. People's love for God will grow cold. And Jesus says, though, in verse 6, and we need to hear this. He says, see to it, believers, that you are not troubled by this. That is a wake-up call for a lot of us. This world is going to fall apart. I promise you it will, Jesus says. But you see to it that you are not troubled by it. You see to it that you find the people that are troubled by it and you give them the good news of the gospel. You help rescue them so they can look at this world and we see it and we don't see the world falling apart and go, oh, I can't believe this world is so terrible. But what we do say is, this means Jesus is coming. Get ready. We need to be ready for it. But we're spending so much time complaining and kicking and screaming and wanting to change things. The way that it changes is that you go out and you meet your neighbor and you say, i got to tell you about the greatest news, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, a life that he's rescued you into and jesus says make sure that you see to it that the gospel is preached throughout the world and then the end will come when we do our job when we go in and obey what it is that he's called us to do then the end will come our minds have to focus and keep focused on christ we've got to take our eyes off of the fern seeds and we got to put it on the elephant what is obvious that jesus christ is king And the world needs to hear it. He is our joy. He's our crown. He's our strength. Just like that belief changes us. It conquers 
the negative beliefs that we have, and we focus on the higher things of this world. May our lives be changed, truly changed, and may others be changed because we know the power of the resurrection. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We want to make your name great. So forgive us, Jesus, when when we keep this to ourselves. We want to be obedient to you. Uh, So help us to not be troubled by what's going on. Help us to pay attention so that we, Father, can then go out and we can tell people. We can show them in Scripture. This has been said and given to us by God long ago. But we need not worry because the grave is empty. Remind us of that each and every day, Father. May we remind one another of that as well. We love you. Amen.